At the start of the school year in late August, many made predictions that all students would be back to learning virtually by Labor Day. But that hasn't happened. Instead, we're coming up on the holidays. Thanksgiving, Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, and New Year's Eve with schools in session and in person. But that doesn't mean cases of COVID-19 in Arkansas have gone down. In fact, the opposite is taking place, with the state regularly recording more than 1,000 new cases a day, with a record-setting 2,312 cases reported on November 13th. The week before Thanksgiving, Arkansas Secretary of Health Dr. Jose Romero issued this warning. We are on the precipice of um, a significant and possibly an uncontrollable rise in cases. Uh, This is like a boulder rolling down a hill. There will come a time where we cannot stop it. Um, It will continue to escalate um, and will eventually overwhelm our health care facilities. Now is the time to act. Dozens of school districts across Arkansas have had to pivot to and from virtual learning since August. That includes two school buildings in Siloam Springs, where Superintendent Jody Wiggins is in charge. In November, Wiggins and the state health department decided it was time to close Northside Elementary, which only houses pre-K and kindergarten students, after several staff members came down with COVID-19. We had enough staff members that uh, tested positive and or were quarantined uh, that we could not not carry forward uh, with our pre-K classes especially. In that case, we actually... Uh, To my knowledge, we did not have any positive cases in our student population uh, from that. Um, The second school uh, was this past week. We we started having a high number of positives within our student population at uh, our intermediate school, which is fifth and sixth grade. Uh, Just this this recent spike in Northwest Arkansas has hit us very hard. The Arkansas Center for Health Improvement has also been mapping COVID-19 infection concentrations in local school districts and color-coding them in green, yellow, orange, red, and now purple. Red and purple zones are communities where the virus is widespread enough to bring infections into local schools. And with each passing week, as the pandemic worsens across the country and in Arkansas, Dr. Joe Thompson, president and CEO of the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement, says the map reveals an alarming number of red and purple zones. And I think these are indicative of the community spread that is being reported by the governor and the secretary of health. So it's a gradient that you can see in your community. We publish these each week and we keep on our website the last five weeks. So you can see a school district that was green, lose control, and now is a high-risk district for transmission of infection, not only in the community, but importation of the COVID infection into the school. It is against this backdrop that we launch episode two of the New Classroom podcast. The New Classroom is a special reporting series produced by KUAF 91.3 with support from the Walton Family Foundation. It explores the struggles, changes, and innovations in education during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Susanna Sytek, a reporter and producer for KUAF's local news magazine called Ozarks at Large, which airs every Monday through Friday at noon and 7 p.m., as well as at 9 a.m. on Sundays. 
In episode two of The New Classroom, you'll hear stories produced by Ozarks at Large staff between the end of October and just before the upcoming Thanksgiving holiday. Our first report comes to us from Jacqueline Froelich. It originally aired on October 23rd, two months after most students returned to school. Since then, thousands of students have gone missing from public schools. Jackie tells us more about a new State Department of Education collaboration launched to help find them. Public schools in Arkansas have been greatly disrupted due to the coronavirus pandemic, and many students are struggling to adjust and remain engaged in learning, according to the Arkansas Department of Education. And some have disappeared. Ivy Pfeffer, Deputy Commissioner for the Division of Elementary and Secondary Education with the Arkansas Department of Education, says there is a formal term for such students. It would basically be the students that are not able to be accounted for. These are students that would have been expected to show up for school this year and did not. Um, those students are identified in our e-school system as no-show students. To ease the burden on districts trying to locate no-show students and to help keep students engaged in learning during this national health emergency, a new state-sponsored initiative was launched earlier this month called Engage Arkansas. It's a partnership between our agency, uh, school districts, our education renewal zones, um, our educational co-ops, and the Graduation Alliance. It um, is a strategy that um, is both a short-term and a long-term strategy. We're wanting to uh, not only be able to intervene um, with um, students who um, are, are not at school right now, that um, we're not sure if um, they are um, enrolled somewhere else, if they've moved, if they're just not engaged. We want to make sure that we're reaching out, trying to identify those and get them into an appropriate learning pathway. Appropriate learning pathways outside of the traditional classroom. Due to the pandemic, there are about 25% of our students who are learning totally remotely through either virtual or another type of uh, remote learning option that the districts have created. And um, there are concerns about um, continuing to keep those students engaged. So um, the strategy will also focus on them and support for school districts to um, engage or re-engage. At no cost to districts, Engage Arkansas collaborators will work to identify, locate, as well as to re-engage students, allowing districts to focus more on providing necessary educational support in person and remotely. Pfeffer says new enrollment data will soon be released, revealing just how many Arkansas public school students are no-shows. I can tell you our preliminary data shows um, an, an overall enrollment decline of about 7,000 students um, from, the, um, in, from this time last year, from, so from fall last year until uh, fall this year. Right now, it looks like the largest decline is in um, the number of kindergarten students enrolled. Preliminary national enrollment data also reveals steep pre-K and kindergarten student declines. Last fall's enrollment in Arkansas was nearly 479,500 students when most were in school buildings pre-pandemic. But this fall, school looks very different, Pfeffer says. Students are either on-site in more of a traditional learning path, 
Um, they might be a virtual student that is participating remotely. And then in some cases, you have districts that have created a hybrid model, and that's one where students may be on campus part of the time, and then they may be off campus part of the time. And that could look differently depending on the type of um, arrangement that the district made. Um, if a student is enrolled in a public school district as a virtual or a hybrid student and they're spending time off campus, they're still connected with all of their teachers. So they're, um, they're enrolled in the school district, they're um, within the school district system, and, and they have, um, they're enrolled in either specific courses if they're a high school student or in elementary school. They're contained within the, the public school computer network. A limited number of learning pods, small groups of public school students taught remotely by qualified instructors hired by parents, are also forming. These pods are not regulated, however. The district would have a learning management system set up where they could either track engagement of students that way or the school district may have um, schedules where students are either checking in daily, logging in daily, or participating in some type of virtual interaction with their teachers. Traditionally, public schools take daily attendance, Pfeffer says, referred to as average daily membership. The average daily membership is what um, accounts for um, school funding. Um, foundation funding is administered to schools based on their three-quarter average daily membership. Districts are provided funding per student to cover education costs, and with thousands missing, districts may receive less financial support. Ivy Pfeffer says the Arkansas Department of Education, like all states, requires compulsory attendance. Unless a student um, has um, been homeschooled or is enrolled in, a, in another educational option, a private school or something, then um, students are, in, are expected to be enrolled in and participating in their public school. So um, if that's not happening, then that's where school districts do have to intervene and um, ultimately would have to report if a, um, if a student is just not in attendance. The Arkansas Department of Human Services is also an Engage Arkansas collaborator working with districts to identify students who may be in distress, provide interventions, and access to critical local community resources. We know that there's a great likelihood that when we have our data finalized that we'll have an increase in the number of homeless students. Um, and we know that in addition to just meeting educational needs, there are a whole lot of other needs that those families are going to have. So we truly want to, to make this about a wraparound type of support for the student, but also for the family, if that's what's needed. If teachers observe students in emotional, physical, or financial distress, they may be able to intervene, in some cases alerting the Arkansas Department of Human Services, triggering investigations. Ashley Davidson worries Arkansas students aren't receiving an adequate education due to the pandemic. She works in the Fayetteville Public School District. That's not at all saying that um, my fellow teachers aren't, you know, trying with their whole hearts because we are. Um, my concern about, you know, the quality of education comes in that um, we're missing so many assignments and we're not hearing from students for so long. And uh, I think that with this model for education, we've got to be in constant communication for it to work. And that communication is just not it's not there right now. 
She says teachers are not only doing their best to educate students, they're working hard to try to find missing students. Yes. Um, I mean, I have students that um, I haven't heard from from, you know, day one. And, you know, we reach out. Um, every teacher is texting, emailing, trying to call. And, um, I mean, there's, there's only so much that we can do. After recovering from a serious illness last winter, Davidson contracted COVID-19 this summer, so understands how the pandemic may be impacting students and their families. We're looking at students um, emotionally. We're looking at them, um, you know, their physical health and um, all of those things. Um, you know, if a student is missing for a week or two weeks or whatever in the, in the actual classroom, that's a red flag. Um, we start investigating on, okay, where is the student at? Um, it's really difficult with virtual learning because that makes it much more difficult for us. Davidson says teachers not only teach, they monitor students' well-being. And with so many missing from school. It's like, do they have clean clothes? Do they have food to eat? The Engage Arkansas initiative aims to resolve such questions by better tracking student enrollment, creating strategies to locate no-show students, identify at-risk students who are disengaging, and help keep all students continuously engaged in learning during a global pandemic, which doesn't appear to be easing anytime soon. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. In early September, about a week into the new school year, I spoke with two moms who chose different modes of learning for their children. One has been learning in person, the other virtually. I checked back in with both of those moms to see how things were going several weeks later in a report that aired on October 26th. Yanni Lucas's son Jake has been going to Greenland Elementary School in person for about two months now. Here's how that's going. But I just lost my tooth. Jake does have one complaint, though, and it's a familiar one. It just it doesn't feel right to me all the time. Just, I don't like it. Jake is talking about having to wear a mask, which he says he and his classmates do when moving around the school building or their classroom. They do get to remove them while sitting at their desks, unless someone who is not part of their group enters the room. We have to keep our mask on if we're around our students. We have to get to our desk if we want to take them off. Jake says they're still eating lunch in their classrooms instead of the cafeteria. And during recess, the playground is still broken up into three sections that students rotate through during the week. The middle portion is Jake's favorite. Oh, because it has that big thing that you can play on. Well, it has the most space. Jake's mom says students have also started going home a couple of hours earlier than usual every Wednesday. Uh, to accommodate the teachers because what I now understand is that the teachers have their kids in class and then they have a whole nother class of online students. While she was nervous to send Jake back to school, Yanni Lucas says the year is going better than she originally expected. Once the school year got rolling, there was better communication. Yeah, there was way better communication. 
They gave us phone call number and a whole bunch of that. And login. Yeah. Um, and messages. If, if they're unable to fully respond at the moment, they'll at least acknowledge they've seen the message. And so far, she says, Jake's school hasn't had any positive cases of COVID-19. Seemingly, everyone is following the universal precautions. They continue to send out weekly kind of updates about how they're going to handle situations if they do arise. Which is great for Jake, Lucas says, because he thrives by interacting with other people. And it, it makes him happier and healthier uh, because he he enjoys it more than it's stressful for him. Um, and I think that that helps his overall mental health, which obviously feeds into our physical health. Um, and I've I'm happy to pick him up every day and he doesn't, he's happy to get up and go to school every morning. She says there's also a certain level of comfort in returning to a routine. Uh, I do try to remain uh, vigilant in the universal efforts. Do I feel like that will be enough to at least get us through? Yes, because the whole goal behind the original uh, precautions for the pandemic was just so that we slowed the spread and didn't overwhelm our hospitals all at once. Um, and so I feel like we are accomplishing that. Meanwhile, at their home in Bentonville, Annie Clapper's daughter, Hazel, has been learning virtually. I like learning about the weather and the outer space. After breakfast each morning, Hazel makes sure she's at her computer for all her classes. We look at the clock and look at the agenda. It's not always very easy. It's easy and, and sometimes it's hard. That's why she and her mom have devised ways to stay focused throughout the day. It's even harder if they don't take breaks, but they usually take like little breaks throughout the day. It helps. What do we do during your breaks? Because it helps, you know, taking a break can help you refocus. So what do we do? What are some good things? We were talking about that today. Sometimes it's a snack break and sometimes it's a dance party break. There's a, we do sometimes do like a kid's meditation podcast when she feels really overwhelmed by the amount of work she has. Um, that helps a lot. And sometimes we do chip, chocolate chip assignments where oh, yes. I do, every time I do an assignment, I get a chocolate chip. And Clapper says Hazel also has an added incentive to get her work done, especially since it's been difficult to connect with fellow classmates outside of seeing them on a computer screen we've made any real friendships that is probably the biggest downside uh, but we are lucky we have a pod uh, of two families that we hang out with so there's that like incentive that at the end of the day if she can get her work done she gets to hang out with her cousins and her best friends so um, that helps a lot like going to school in person clapper says virtual learning comes with its own set of challenges it's a mixed bag in a different way than regular school is i think something that it's challenging is as her work ramps up, um, I'm trying to maintain like my job and then also help her. And then we have a three-year-old as well. So that's a lot to juggle because with two small kids, it is very similar to like walking through three feet of water. You're, you're moving, but slowly and with lots of labor. But she adds learning from home also has its perks, especially for a family of introverts. Probably the best thing is that um, we all get to sleep later, which is huge. Uh, and then the other nice thing is that 
it allows so much flexibility. So um, a couple of weeks ago, we went on uh, like a COVID vacation uh, where we went with our pod and stayed in the house and sort of hunkered down on the beach, um, socially distanced and masked whenever we went to the store. And um, the kids were able to do a little bit of school while we did that, which is something we would never have been able to do without just fully missing school. Um, and it was kind of cool. Those challenges and perks will continue well into the new year. As Clapper says, her daughter will continue learning virtually for the entirety of first grade. My parents live very nearby and they're like 80. So for us, we're being really cautious uh, because spending time with them is a very big priority to us. Um, and our pod sort of was like, we all talked about it. We decided to all stick with it through the year. And we'll see from there. Um, I'm feeling hopeful about uh, the numbers in Bentonville as far as COVID cases go. I'm feeling hopeful that we can sort of get little pieces of life back as more people cooperate and wear masks. And, um, you know, hope, I'm hopeful. And Clapper adds they really like Hazel's teacher, who they never would have had had they not done virtual learning. I'm going to tell a story that made me really, like, choked me up. It was so sweet. Uh, last week, Hazel had a bingo game with her small group, and they were playing. And in the background, our three-year-old was having a meltdown, and I was just, you know, rubbing his back, and he was quietly crying, and the teacher could hear him. And Hazel just turned around, and she goes, Robbie, Miss Trollinger would like to know if you would like to play the game with us. And she just totally included our three-year-old in this bingo game, and it was the sweetest thing. It was, we felt, I just, I could not speak, I cannot speak highly enough of the team that we have virtually. Now that they have the next half of the school year figured out, Clapper says they're not making any plans beyond that. In the words of Frozen 2, I'm just trying to do the next right thing. There's at least one thing, though, that remains the same, whether learning virtually or in person. And that's the best part about going to school. The best part like is um mostly recess and like it's not really virtual recess but we do at home recess recess lunch and going home <laughs> for ozarks at large i'm Susanna Saitek. The two moms you just heard from in that story have been able to keep working. But throughout the country, the share of women in the workforce has fallen to levels not seen since the late 1980s. That's a significant drop if you consider that for three months up until February of this year, the number of women in the workforce was greater than the number of men. In a report that aired on November 2nd, I found out that not only have women lost the most jobs since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic in the U.S., but they're also exhausted from the child care and housework. So some are choosing to leave work. Rebecca Graham has a 10-year-old son who started middle school this year. She says he suffers from breathing issues and has for several years. You know, he has a lot of trouble breathing. So we decided to keep him home or I decided I would keep him home. I also work a really uh, high risk job. I'm a frontline worker. Um, I work in corrections. And so I knew that the risk was really high and also didn't want to spread it to others. Between going to her job, attending school herself and helping her son with his schoolwork, Graham says it's just become too much to handle every day. The workload for his school is a lot. Pretty much on a day-to-day -day basis, on the days I do school with him, we're doing school eight to three. 
I mean, solid, even virtual eight to three school. And then I start on mine. And so on the days that I have to go to work, my parents help out and then it's just chaotic from there. So every day is just a struggle to get all the boxes checked. Graham says she reached a point where she felt she had to choose between sending her son back to school or leaving her job. And I've been there for over eight years, so it's very hard to make that choice. But that's the choice I've settled on because I just don't feel comfortable sending him. As a single parent, Graham is the sole provider for her family. And while it's hard to give that up, she says she's lucky to be in a position to be able to do so, at least for a time. You know, I have some savings and I have some things that I'll be able to rely on. And um, so I won't be completely without. Um, And then I have kind of some things I just do on the side. And so I'll still be able to bring in a little bit. But it is hard to give up, you know, the comfort of having that income. I went through a phase where I felt very selfish for it because I know a lot of people have lost their income against their will. But it's even simpler than that. Honestly, I like my job, but I just, it's not worth it right now to me. And Graham says remote learning now is quite a bit different from what it was like when schools closed to in-person learning last spring. It was more presented in a form of like, here's your workload for the week. Get it done when you can, you know. And so there were days that we didn't do a lot of school during the day and we did it more in the evening and it worked for us. Now we've got three, four, sometimes five Zoom calls a day that are scheduled. It's it's pretty overwhelming, which is the thing that has led me to this decision is that, you know, I can't balance it all. It was hard before the pandemic started and it has just really expanded it's really brought out to me the limits that I have. But Graham is cautiously optimistic about the future because she'll be able to focus on her education while she's not working. So when I do get ready to kind of go back out into the career workforce, I'll have that. I will have done something with that time. You know, I'll have a degree to back that up. Um, But it is scary to know kind of this doesn't seem to have any kind of end in sight. So it is scary to think about what that could mean. In another part of the state, Sarah Sutton has also stepped away from her job after becoming a new mom. Yeah. So when we found out we were pregnant in December, we did not really envision uh, welcoming our baby in the middle of a global pandemic or having to make uh, the like myriad of new parent decisions in addition to the virus that is uh, happening. Sutton returned to work as a school teacher six days after giving birth to her daughter in early August and had been teaching her students virtually. Which was okay during that sleepy newborn phase, but as she's becoming more awake and more aware of uh, this very overwhelming place and her limbs that do things without sometimes her consent, she <laughs> she's a lot more of a handful She says trying to teach via Zoom and care for her then two-month-old baby at the same time became a lot to manage. I've been Zooming from home. Sometimes she's on my chest. Sometimes I have to turn my camera off so that we can nurse. (laughs) Um, Sometimes it's like, hey, she's screaming. I got to go. I'll be back. 
In trying to do both things at the same time, Sutton says she felt like she wasn't properly focused on either of them. I want to provide the best education I can for my students, and I know I'm not able to do that with a newborn, and I also want to take care of this tiny human to the best of my ability, and I also know I don't do that super efficiently when I'm trying to Zoom with my students, so it's been a real challenge. But stepping away from teaching her students wasn't an easy decision, she says, especially since she's the only grade-level teacher in her rural school district. Sutton says it's why she decided to return to teaching so quickly in the first place. Um, recognizing that by not doing so, I put my district in an incredibly tough position and my students in a tough place because they inevitably wouldn't have had a teacher. And I really tried to juggle that for a long time. And I'm just coming to a point. She'll be, I guess she's nine weeks today. So nine weeks today. And I was like, I got to take like a month or two to sort of regroup and focus on baby and figuring out what is going to be a feasible solution. Sutton hopes by the time January comes around, there will be a space available for her daughter at a daycare she and her husband felt had the best quality of care and safety protocols. There are several child care centers in the area that are not accepting newborns at all right now, um, not due to capacity, but because of the virus um, and because of the limited amount of information we have. And I would assume, although it's not stated, I would assume the amount of time and uh, human capital it takes to ensure the facilities are clean and newborns are notoriously not clean um, and people love to love on babies. So I'm sure there's also a concern about what babies are bringing into the facilities. Sutton says she's been thinking a lot about her new identity as a mom, which is something she's experiencing for the first time, while also trying to maintain her identity as a teacher, which she's known for much longer. So it feels like giving up a huge piece of me um, if I were to step away from that career because it's become such a part of who I am and how I relate to the world around me. And then I just care so deeply about my students. I want them to be successful and I want them to do well and I want to be able to provide them um, an equitable education and a compassionate ear and all the things that teachers are. And while Sutton's family obviously matters to her a great deal, so do her students and colleagues, which is why she hopes to return to work sooner rather than later. She says her husband has been supportive and understanding. But like many other men, he hasn't had to make a choice between the two. Even if there wasn't the pandemic, I'd be home taking care of the baby. But because of the pandemic, it's I'm taking care of the baby. And I'm also trying to figure out, am I going to have to leave my career behind for months to a year um, in a way that fortunately he doesn't have to think through that way. He's been super supportive and wonderful, but I do think that uh, women as a society bear the brunt anyway when it comes to raising children. And then especially in this current climate, I think that burden is just continuing to fall on women. Sutton and Rebecca Graham are far from alone. According to Labor Department statistics, women are leaving the workforce at four times the rate as men. In September, 865,000 women over the age of 20 dropped out of the workforce, compared to 216,000 men in the same age group. That worries Hamas Amato, a professor in the Department of Education Reform at the University of Arkansas. 
That was my worry. I think this could have important implications long-term for gender equality. This will have potential implications for the promotions later on. And if, in the worst case, if they are leaving the labor force, we know that once women leave the labor force, it, it can be very hard for them to come back. And collectively, Zamaro says that has the potential to set women back decades. So that's something that worries me a lot. Back in June, Zamato and her colleagues published a research brief examining the differences in the pandemic's impact on the lives of men and women. We use data from the uh, from USC, the University of Southern California. Um, it's called the Understanding America Coronavirus Tracking Survey. They have been collecting data uh, of a national representative sample from the U.S. every two weeks since uh, um, this crisis started. So since we use in that work, we use data from March to July, collected every two weeks. Data from April and May showed that women were carrying a much heavier load of child care responsibilities after schools closed to in-person learning across the country, many of them while also still working themselves. To give you an idea, we found that one out of three women said they were the only one in the household that were taking care of their children when schools were closed, and that compared with one out of ten working dads, so it's a big difference. The team has been examining the data since then to see if those statistics have changed, and Zamato says it doesn't look much better now than it did then. So we see that it seems that right now is actually one out of two working moms say they are the only one providing childcare or school support as compared to still one out of 10 working dads. The data also shows increased childcare needs are having an impact on how many hours parents are able to work and whether they're able to continue to work at all. Once again, women were reducing their hours and leaving or losing their jobs at much higher rates than men. Zamato says this not only has an impact on the individual and collective advancement of women, it also has an impact on the entire economy. And also, uh, I worry about the unequal, uh, the, the increasing inequality that this could have. So we know that not everybody has been hit the same. We know that minorities, African-American and Hispanic women in particular, they have been hit more with um, back in April with higher rates of unemployment. And they still have higher rates of unemployment today. Zamato believes the key to getting more women back into the workforce and keeping them there is managing COVID-19 spread in schools and their surrounding communities. I think that what will help women the most is to be able to send their kids safely to school five days uh, per week. And until we have that, it's going to be very hard. And while women have made great strides in fighting for equity and equality, Zamato says what's happening now is something women have been up against for a long time. And I think it just goes back again to these gender roles that and stereotypes that we still have in society. And in a crisis, we just revert back. It could also be optimal decisions for families in the sense that women are often the one earning less than the husband. So it could be that if you know, they see it impossible and someone has to leave the labor force, then it will be the one who is bringing less money. Zamato says she understands those decisions are made based on individual circumstances. But it doesn't keep her from worrying what that will ultimately mean for greater equity and equality for women in society overall in the future. 
For Ozarks at Large, I'm Susanna Sytek. The number of women in the workforce is not the only thing that's dropping. Halfway through the 2020 fall semester, the National Student Clearinghouse Research Center found that undergraduate enrollment is also down across the board. But community colleges are taking the biggest hit, with a 7.5% drop nationally. Northwest Arkansas Community College in Bentonville reported its enrollment fell by 12% in September, compared to the same time last year. In a report that aired on October 27th, Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth spoke with Vice President of Student Services Todd Kitchen about what that figure means for the school going into 2021. And Todd, can you just give me kind of a snapshot of the college's enrollment for 2020 uh, compared to last year? Sure. Um, our fall enrollment, uh, we came in with 7,583 students. Uh, compared to 8,649 students the previous fall. Right. And so where is that dip coming from, you know, with COVID-19, but who's being most impacted by that? Is it first-year students, transfer students, younger, older? It's it's a combination, and that's a great question. Our first-year students are new freshmen. That population was down roughly 500 fewer freshmen than the previous year. And then the other losses were spread across transfer students and uh, returning students. Because nationally, there is this trend that community colleges have been affected more by COVID-19 than uh, four-year colleges. Where do you think that's coming from? Why do you believe that is? Part of that challenge is community colleges historically have served a large population, but we know we have a very distinct mission that focuses on underserved populations. So when you look at the socioeconomics and look at the demographics that have been impacted by COVID-19, many of the populations that we historically serve have been impacted. So now you have financial strain, housing security strains, food security, and things of that nature. And I think that is what is really the driver behind the community college enrollment taking as much of a negative hit as as we've seen this year, this past year. And then as far as fees and finances, have you had to increase fees or in enrollment costs, anything like that? So um, right now, uh, no, we have not. And I will tell you, one of the things that the community colleges have benefited from uh, is the ability to access some funds from the federal government, some COVID relief funds, and even to be able to give some of those funds directly to our students. So as of now, no, we haven't had to increase our cost uh, for our students to continue their educations. And uh, on finances, can you just kind of break down for me how that's looking throughout the rest of this year and then into the future, just kind of where some of those the federal grants or money is coming from and or state money? Yeah, so the federal grants, uh, the money that we received earlier in the year, um, we, we had access to those funds, but those funds have to be expended by December 31st. We don't know what the outlook of those funds uh, will look like and the availability of those funds will look like into the next into the next year. I think the community colleges are successful because we remain nimble. We remain very fluid. So we have been able to address certain things to reprioritize, reallocate funds and things of that nature that will certainly get us through the current uh, fiscal year, the current budget year. But we will have to work hard to address the enrollment, decline in enrollment, and certainly work hard to reverse that trend so that it does not have an economic impact on the community college long term. And so what percentage of the fall classes are online right now? 
I would say roughly 90% are online, 10% are face-to-face. And then is that going to change coming up in the spring semester or into the next fall? So it's, it's, uh, this is a, a difficult task. I would say right now, safely with the spring semester, you will see a similar approach. We are looking for ways to increase those face-to-face offerings. However, it's a delicate balance because we have to maintain our standards of safety. So again, I think you will see an increase gradually into the spring of more face-to-face offerings, um, more increases by the summer, and certainly, if all goes well, uh, would like to see more traditional face-to-face offerings by fall of, of 2021. And are you seeing similar trends in enrollment with workforce development or adult and continuing education? Actually, since the uh, beginning of this crisis, the workforce development training has just skyrocketed. As a matter of fact, uh, I was visiting with our Dean of Workforce Development who shared with me they have offered over 13,812 hours of online training. Their retail and supplier uh, training and certificate programs have increased over 80% during this crisis. So where you see the traditional credit degree-seeking transfer programs in decline, on the workforce side of the house, their numbers are actually growing at a very steady rate. And then as far as uh, staff, faculty, um, if you had to let people go, what's the temperature there? Yeah, so again, uh, because of good budgeting, because of good um, uh, financial uh, resources made available through some COVID uh, packages and whatnot from the federal government. We have not had to let people go. We are not in a hiring freeze. Certainly, we are watching our expenditures, but it has not, from a personnel standpoint, forced us to do anything negatively with uh, with our personnel. And then looking ahead, how do you feel about enrollment for the upcoming for 2021? I uh, consider myself a conservative optimist, uh, so I am hopeful as we are able to increase the face-to-face offerings in a safe way that we can, again, uh, reverse this trend or change the direction of this trend and begin growing our enrollment once again. I think it's important to point out our faculty and staff, so all of the world is in the middle of navigating this pandemic. Our faculty and staff, as human beings, are navigating these very tumultuous times while continuing to teach and provide services for our students. And I I think that's what makes um, community colleges and other institutions uh, very special. The heart of what we do is, is the people that are committed to their important work. That was Todd Kitchen, the Vice President of Student Services at Northwest Arkansas Community College, speaking with my Ozarks at Large colleague, Daniel Carruth, in late October. While the community college saw a drop in the number of students on its campus, public charter schools across Arkansas are seeing the opposite. The state operates two dozen of these types of schools, in addition to hundreds of traditional school districts. In a report that aired on November 16th, Jacqueline Froelich is back to tell us about why charter schools are gaining in enrollment while traditional public schools are not. Modern band class students at Arkansas Arts Academy in Rogers, known as the Carbonados, perform eight days a week by the Beatles at a winter concert last January. Eight 
auditorium filled with students, teachers, and parents just weeks before a global pandemic was declared. Richard Burroughs is CEO of the Arkansas Arts Academy, which operates a K-12 elementary school and high school, a total of 1,200 in attendance. And our mission is to provide a really rigorous academic program with a very purposeful integration of the arts at every grade level in all four or five art forms, depending on how you consider that, because that would include music, dance, theater, visual arts, and media arts uh, experiences. Arkansas Arts Academy, the second oldest in one of the largest public charter districts in Arkansas, reopened for in-person classes this fall after going virtual last winter. The decision was made that uh, we would attempt to have a blended learning opportunities or alternative learning opportunities, and so we wanted to ensure that our students would still get uh, a modest amount of in-person uh, dance, music, theater, and visual arts instruction so that half of the students would be able to come two days a week in-person instruction. Uh, after those two days, uh, the instruction would uh, flip and we would have the ones that, who had done virtual instruction come to school and those who had been at school would, uh, would go to virtual instruction. The blended instruction, Burroughs says, is very new with teachers having to create both in-class and at-home curricula. Large group music, art, and performing arts classes are carefully orchestrated to prevent virus transmission, he says. Or that in the case of instrumental music, they can, they can work with the wind instruments alone or they can work with the violins alone. And then there's, you know, there's still practice and good work that goes on uh, virtually. Of 262 public school districts in Arkansas, 24 are charter school districts which operate free public experimental schools closely monitored by a state charter authorizing board. The Arkansas Department of Health publishes COVID-19 positive data by public school district based on local community cases. Charter school district data is not broken out given charter districts enroll students across traditional school district borders. But as of October 26th, 1,090 faculty and staff, along with 3,300 students, have tested positive for COVID-19, according to the Arkansas Department of Health. And I'm saying this anecdotally because we have no way to prove it one way or the other, but I, I, I do believe that students are not coming to school uh, and contracting the virus while they're at the school site because we're so careful in our protocols. The schools are cleaned and deep cleaned on a regular basis. Um, and only once have we had to send the entire school home for a week of virtual instruction when uh, an adult at the school who had contact with a large part of the student population tested positive. The positive case at the Arkansas Arts Academy occurred in the high school, which temporarily closed mid-October. Borough says districts are prohibited from disclosing the identity of positive cases. We queried Northwest Arkansas Classical Academy in Bentonville for this report with no response, which also had to temporarily close an elementary school in early October due to a COVID-19 positive case. And according to Tiffany Despain, a school nurse and instructor at Haas Hall Academy District, her four 7 through 12 grade campuses in Fayetteville, Bentonville, Springdale, and Rogers have not been forced to go all virtual, a consequence of someone testing positive. 
Every scholar every day college bound. So we're a college preparatory institution. That's Haas Hall Superintendent Martin Schopmeyer. He's proud to be founder of one of the first and most academically noted charter schools in Arkansas. And we have 100% graduation and 100% college acceptance rate. Haas Hall students, he says, can opt for virtual, blended, or in-classroom instruction with faculty teaching homeschool and in-school courses simultaneously. You know, it's about a third, a third, a third initially when we started this. It's gone to about 40% now uh, full-time at school. Operating a college prep academy during a global pandemic offers certain learning opportunity, Schottmeyer says. Last year, around 1,000 students were enrolled. This year, enrollment is up by 50%. Yeah, we're, all, we're all in this together, and we're all looking at this pandemic and hoping that it will end soon. But uh, realistically speaking, we're ready to take it on as long as we need to. Joanna Levers, Director of Charter Development at the Arkansas Public School Resource Center in Little Rock. Some of the charter schools were already providing remote or virtual instruction, so not much change was required for them. But they've had their um, fair share of challenges as well due to COVID, and it's because their enrollment has increased significantly. Lever is referring to charter districts in Arkansas reckoning with new enrollment demand. According to new data posted by the Arkansas Department of Education, by contrast, traditional public schools are losing students. It shows that state enrollment overall is down around 6,400 students, and that's in all schools. But the enrollment in charter schools is that has actually increased from 2020 to 2021 by um, 3,898 students. Lieber says charter schools with limited enrollment may be more nimble in meeting remote learning as well as safety procedures during the pandemic compared to traditional schools. You know, the design principles that the charter community is found on are centered around innovation. And so some of the public charter schools were able to rapidly deploy teachers, and technology um, to reach students and keep the, keep the learning moving forward. Which traditional public schools strive towards as well, Weaver says. Charter schools that receive a surplus of new student applications are required by state law to host blind lotteries to fairly select incoming students. You know, right now the percentage of students accessing the fully virtual open enrollment charter schools has grown by about 65% from 2020 to 2021. And those fully virtual um, statewide charter schools would include Arkansas Connections Academy and Arkansas Virtual Academy. Arkansas Virtual Academy, a K-12 public charter school located in Pulaski County, counted 2,500 students last year. This year, nearly 3,900 are enrolled. As for Arkansas Connections Academy in Bentonville, also a virtual school, nearly 2,800 students are enrolled up from around 1,600 last year. But charter districts located in working poor communities are seeing steep enrollment declines, a possible consequence of the pandemic. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich.
Whether they attend charter or public schools, thousands of Arkansas high schoolers are also in the middle of juggling learning during a global pandemic while applying for college. Daniel Carruth brings us another report that aired on November 12th, this time about how ACT testing has changed in the time of COVID-19. It's 5.30 on Tuesday night, and high school student Ella Flesher is waiting on her most recent ACT test scores at her kitchen table when a message pops up on her phone. What? They have a queue. ACT now has a queue for looking at your scores. Flesher is a senior at Haas Hall Academy in Fayetteville, except this year she's not actually at Haas Hall because she's taking all of her classes online. And she says navigating that new way of schooling while also preparing and applying for college has been stressful. Um, Managing my time is the most difficult part of this, I think. And there are so many, like, like technology errors (laughs) that it makes it even harder to contact people because of the pandemic and just make sure I have everything together. She says some of those technological hiccups happened when she was registering for her most recent ACT test this summer. I'm not gonna lie, it wasn't great because they recently switched over to a new platform, so they made an entirely new way to like access scores, register for the ACT, um, all of that. And so I had to transfer my old account into this new platform and there were just so many technical difficulties. Um, It was just really, really stressful. And so we went through so many email rabbit holes. And so they finally just gave me a test for free actually. So that was good, but you know, just that we had to contact so many people was really frustrating. Catherine Hoffman is the vice president of state and federal programs with ACT. And she says other students had similar issues as Flesher. We did have some challenges this summer with that. Um, We have moved to stabilize our system, so students shouldn't have any problem entering my ACT and registering at this time. And when we recognized that students had that challenge, that is when we increased to seven test dates for this fall and then one in December just to give some students some more time because they weren't able to get in with the excellence that ACT is, is, is committed to this summer. There were some challenges getting into our MyACT account. So we stabilized that. There should be no issues now um, with students going in and registering and being able to do that. Hoffman says 2020 has been a particularly challenging year for the ACT because of COVID-19. In the spring, ACT canceled all of its exam dates nationally as schools and testing sites shut down. When we did that, however, we offered some different options. Um, We added a June test date for state. We also added a June and July test date for um, our national test dates. We also added seven national test dates in September and October on Saturdays and Sundays. And we created three state testing dates in the fall for state testing, one in September and two in October, all Tuesdays. So between those first week of June test dates all the way till the last week of October test dates, um, we had um, a little over 700,000 students test during that time frame. So um, even though I know there were a lot of challenges and a lot of 
test centers closing where students couldn't get in, unfortunately, we were able to test 700,000, over, well over 700,000 students during a pandemic. Now she says the testing company is working on ways to be more accessible for students and prepare for the possibility of more school closures. We are doing a beta test of um, remote proctoring to have that available if needed. Um, again, if schools begin to close down or we have test centers that aren't willing to open, we could have um, a remote proctored version of online for the ACT. And Hoffman says another alternative ACT is experimenting with are new pop-up testing sites to allow room for more students with appropriate social distance. The company started pop-up trials in eight states this September. So we have engaged with um, some hotels, some ballrooms and different things and provided pop-up sites. And um, once those sites reach about 80%, we cap it and reserve the remaining 20% for students who may be displaced due to site closures. So those have been um, very successful for us because, again, in that instance, we, we control whether that site's going to be open or not, where if it's at a college or a university, um, they make that choice. And then it really allows for um, nice social distancing of the students because it is such a large space to make sure that um, we're utilizing all the CDC recommendations of masks and correct social distancing. So our proctors felt like it went very well, and we were able to, you know, test thousands of students in those ways in which maybe they wouldn't have been able to get in otherwise. Beyond safety, other barriers to taking the ACT have been exaggerated by the pandemic, especially for low-income students. The cost of a single ACT test for students is $52 and 68 if you also take the writing portion of the test. And that doesn't include fees for accessing and sending test scores. But Hoffman says ACT offers some relief for students who need it. So every student gets um, four free score reports. So when they take the test, um, they can send their score to four colleges and universities or whomever they choose to for free. Um, If you are a free and reduced lunch student, you can take the ACT for free up to four times during your high school career, twice your junior year and twice your senior year. So for those students, um, they simply, if you're a free and reduced lunch student, you simply go to your school um, and let them know you want a voucher for um, the ACT and they provide you one. And you can take the ACT on any Saturday of your choice for free. And when it comes to college admissions, some schools have already decided to drop mandatory ACT or SAT test scores for the 2021 fall semester. Suzanne McRae is the Vice Provost for Enrollment and Dean of Admissions at the University of Arkansas. The pandemic has really had the biggest uh, effect, uh, the biggest impact on students applying to be freshmen or new students for the fall of 2021. Students haven't been able to take tests, uh, ACT, SAT exams in the way they normally would. They had pass-fail grades in the spring. They're doing a lot of work online. They've really endured quite a disruption as far as preparing for that next step from going from high school to going to college. So we've tried to do several things to help them. We've become test optional for admission. We are offering some of our scholarships based on GPA as opposed to ACT. And we have also had offered some free application days 
for students who may have had a really terrible time as far as their parents losing their jobs, where $40 can seem um, significant and may slow down their process for applying. But not all universities have adopted this policy, and students applying for other scholarships, like the Arkansas Challenge or Lottery Scholarship, still need to have an ACT score just to be eligible. Ella Flesher says the ACT exam has become so connected to college admission, she would be wary to apply without one. Honestly, I'm still kind of skeptical about not taking the, like, not submitting my scores to colleges. So I'm just going to go ahead and submit my scores. Um, It just gives me an edge, especially when it comes to, you know, the competitiveness of scholarships. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Daniel Carruth. We wrap up this episode of The New Classroom by hearing from educators who are teaching their students in person. I first spoke with these two teachers before the start of the school year and caught up with them in early November to find out how the last two and a half months have gone for them. Uh, Well, teaching this year has for sure been unlike any other year. Annabelle Yu is a French teacher at Fayetteville High School. This is my 20th year. at at the high school, so I I have a few under my belt. And man, I mean, it's one unexpected thing after the next. She says this school year has been a lot of things all at once. Better, worse, more challenging, more fulfilling, more tiring. And in at least one way, it's been surprising. This is tricky for me to say because I don't want to give anybody the wrong idea. But as far as like positive cases and number of students quarantined, I am very surprised at how low that number has been because, you know, I mean, people were saying we're not even going to make it until Labor Day. Personally, Bill Yu believes the numbers are still too high, but it appears safety measures like mask wearing and social distancing that have been put in place in Fayetteville schools are working. My experience is that the students have been very compliant. You know, I mean, nobody wants to wear a mask all day. Let's be honest. It's it's not easy. And the students don't get a whole lot of break from wearing a mask. Um, but But they are compliant. She says students seem to understand the severity of the situation. And for the most part, the precautions are not getting in the way of the main thing they're all there to do. What I have been encouraged by is that learning is happening. And so that's been really nice um, because as an educator, that's your ultimate reward. But Bill, you adds she has noticed more students than usual are underperforming or checking out altogether. So that's that's disappointing. And I think that's a struggle and a frustration for everyone involved, students, parents, teachers and administrators. And so we just haven't quite, you know, solved that puzzle. And then there's the workload. The workload has been soul crushing, to be honest with you. Um, Professionally speaking, it's been a very difficult year. Beaulieu says that's mostly because she has to take the lessons she teaches in person in three different classes and make them suitable for students who are learning virtually. And that takes a long time. It's not as simple as just drag and drop. Um, that's, I mean, there's so much that I cannot even use from my 20 years that I have 
my bag of tricks might as well be empty because not many of them are really very useful this year because like we said it's a it's a whole different it's a whole different approach Aside from the additional labor that goes into creating virtual content, Bilyeu says she also has to make sure all her students are getting an equitable education, whether they're learning in person, online, or in a hybrid format. You, you have to be careful what you're doing with your on-site students so that it's not so vastly different from what your online students are getting because ultimately they all have to end up at the same spot. Although she teaches much younger students, Rosanna Brown's school year bears a lot of similarities to Bullyu's. Well, um, it is a little bit, it is more time consuming than I expected. Brown is a fourth grade teacher at Ballman Elementary School in Fort Smith. Aside from all the time of trying to get all your lessons blended and online and available to students who are not there, uh, you know, then you have to go back and you have still have all the grading and planning that you had before, but you're also at the same time converting everything. And so it's, it is a lot more time consuming. Despite all that, Brown says she's thrilled to be back to teaching in person. I love to see the aha moments um, when they tell me, hey, I'm stuck on this. I like to go, OK, let's start from the very beginning so I can see where you're stuck. And I like that step by step process. I like trying to meet them where they're at. Brown has about 17 students in her classroom, when normally she says she'd have nearly 30. And while her students are 9 and 10 years old, they've been diligent about wearing their masks and following other safety guidelines. I do highly encourage my, um, my little learners to let me know. And they can always go out in the hall where I put big red X's six feet apart. If no one else is in the hall, they can go out there. Um, we do have a painted big X's in the playground <laughs> with bright orange paint, and we go out there for mask breaks. When her students do leave the classroom for lunch, Brown says they all have assigned seats at the cafeteria. Um, we have extra lunch periods, and they're spread out from, they start at 1030 and end at like almost one. And uh, so we could spread the kids out. Um, they are, there's only, there's big long tables. I think we have three on one side and three on the other so that they are spread out and um, the chairs are numbered for the big kids so they know what number chair is theirs and actual another piece of tape for names for the little kids. The Fort Smith School District has also started making its own disinfectant and hired extra staff to help sanitize the buildings and playground throughout the day. So it is working out really well. We recently were allowed with this new hiring of sanitation um, to uh, use playground equipment. And so we have to make sure they sanitize their hands before they go outside and then they have to sanitize their hands when they come back inside. And so there's a lot of sanitizer being used. Brown says she encourages parents to keep their children home if there's any indication they might be sick or could have been exposed to COVID-19, which is why she converts all of her in-person learning plans to an online format. Brown hasn't had any cases in her classroom so far, and she is notified of instances of the virus in her building via email. But because of privacy concerns, all other information is left out. There was a class close to mine, and somebody uh, did test positive, one of the students, and they quarantined half the class and the teacher. Um, nobody else had a positive test, and they all came back. But it was really 
I thought it was handled really well. It was very swift, very quick. The minute they found out, everybody was immediately um, notified and sent home. In Fayetteville, the school district has launched a COVID-19 dashboard that's updated every day at 5 p.m. It includes information about cases and possible exposures among students and staff. It also lists schools with five or more active or quarantined cases. As an educator, Annabelle Yu says it's important to have access to as much of that information as possible. Those those numbers mean something, you know, and those those numbers are going to that's that's information that people need to be able to evaluate their own situation to decide what's best for, you know, themselves personally, but also their families moving forward. So I do applaud the district for for doing that. But she says Fayetteville and other school districts around the state could benefit from more manpower for monitoring and controlling the spread of the virus. One of the things is there's always so many things going on and there's so many questions and there's so many things to do that's really easy for information to get lost. And it's really easy to just let a question go that you did want the answer to, but something else has taken precedence. And while Bilyeu believes there are things the district could be doing better, administrators have made improvements along the way, like increasing signage and implementing temperature checks for staff and students. She also says she feels relatively safe with the precautions she's able to take in her classroom. I am able to to um, distance students at six feet. Um, and I have, you know, I have a little barrier for myself at the front of the room, more for me because I'm a walker. As the president of the Fayetteville Education Association, which is a district-wide teachers union, Bill Yu also regularly communicates with other educators. You know, it depends on the teacher, depends on the content, but for a lot of us, our home virtual students are suffering. You know, I mean, they are, they're not participating at the same rate as their um, on-site counterparts. And to be honest with you, students don't know how to learn like this. And it's not their fault, and it's not our fault either. We've never had to teach this way, so they've never had to learn this way. Which is why Bolu says, now more than ever, she wants to remind the community the education system is a partnership. And that partnership should include a consideration of the way people choose to spend the next few holidays. We've done a good job so far. But I think that is because everybody has been very compliant with the safety protocols and many of the parents have been very good about keeping strict regulations on, you know, themselves and their families when they're home. As soon as we start to relax that, then that's going to impact um, everyone. And then we may end up in a situation where we don't have a choice and school has to shut down and go virtual. Bill Yu also encourages community members to pay attention to the education-related bills that come before the state legislature in the coming legislative session, and to consider whether the state should go ahead with teacher evaluations and standardized testing during this school year. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Zuzanna Sytek. This episode, you heard reporting done by Jacqueline Froelich, Daniel Carruth, and me, Susanna Sytek. You can hear more stories like these every Monday through Friday on Ozarks at Large at noon and 7 p.m. and at 9 a.m. on Sundays. You can also hear stories about how this pandemic has impacted nearly every other aspect of our lives and the lives of our neighbors. 
And you can stream KUAF 91.3 online at KUAF.com, where you'll find past and future episodes of the New Classroom podcast, as well as past episodes of Ozarks at Large. We dedicate this episode to all educators, school staff, students, and parents impacted by the pandemic, but especially those who have fallen ill or passed away due to COVID-19. I'm Susanna Sytek, and the new Classroom Special Reporting Series is supported by the Walton Family Foundation and produced by KUAF 91.3 in beautiful downtown Fayetteville.